Hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah 11, verse 1, through chapter 12, verse 26. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. But in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his own property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah and of the sons of Benjamin. Of the sons of Judah, Athiah, the son of Uzziah, son of Zechariah, son of Amariah, son of Shephatiah, son of Mahalalel, of the sons of Perez. And Messiah, the son of Baruch, son of Kolhosa, son of Haziah, son of Adiah, son of Joyarib, son of Zechariah, son of the Shilonite. All the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. And these are the sons of Benjamin, Salu, the son of Meshulam, son of Joed, son of Padiah, son of Koliah, son of Messiah, son of Ithiel, son of Jeshiah and his brothers, men of valor, 928. Joel, the son of Zikri, was their overseer, and Judah, the son of Hasanuah, was second over the city. Of the priests, Jediah, the son of Joyarib, Jachin, Sariah, the son of Hilkiah, son of Meshulam, son of Zadok, son of Maroth, son of Ahitub, ruler of the house of God, and their brothers who did the work of the house, 822. And Adiah, the son of Jeroham, son of Pelilah, son of Amzi, son of Zechariah, son of Pashur, son of Melchijah and his brothers, heads of fathers' houses, 242. And Amishai, the son of Azarel, son of Azai, son of Meshillamoth, son of Immer and their brothers, mighty men of valor, 128. Their overseer was Zabdiel, the son of Hagadolam. And of the Levites, Shemaiah, the son of Hashub, son of Azrakam, son of Hashabiah, son of Bunai, and Shabbathiah, and Josabad, of the chiefs of the Levites, who were over the outside work of the house of God. And Mataniah, the son of Mekah, son of Zabdai, son of Asaph, who was the leader of the praise, who gave thanks. And Bakbukiah, the second among his brothers, and Abdah, the son of Shamua, son of Galal, son of Jejithun. All the Levites in the holy city were 284. The gatekeepers, Akub, Talman, and their brothers, who kept watch at the gates, were 172. And the rest of Israel and of the priests and the Levites were in all the towns of Judah, everyone in his inheritance. But the temple servants lived on Ophel, and Ziha and Gishpa were over the temple servants. The overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzai, the son of Bani, son of Hashabiah, son of Mataniah, son of Mekah, of the sons of Asaph, the singers, over the work of the house of God. For there was a command from the king concerning them, and a fixed provision for the singers, as every day required. And Pethahiah, the son of Meshezebel, of the sons of Zerah, the son of Judah, was at the king's side in all matters concerning the people. And as for the villages with their fields, some of the people of Judah lived in Kiriath Arba and its villages, and in Dibon and its villages, and in Jacobzeel and its villages, and in Jeshua, and in Molida, and Beth Pelet, in Hezar Shuel, in Beersheba, and its villages, in Ziklag, in Makona, and its villages, in Enrimon, 
in Zorah, in Jarmuth, Zanoa, Adullam, and their villages, Lachish and its fields, and Azekah and its villages. So they encamped from Beersheba to the valley of Hinnom. The people of Benjamin also lived from Geba onward at Michmash, Aijah, Bethel and its villages, Anathoth, Nob, Ananiah, Hazor, Ramah, Getaim, Hadid, Zeboim, Nebalat, Lod, and Ono, the Valley of Craftsmen. And certain divisions of the Levites in Judah were assigned to Benjamin. These are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, Sariah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Maluk, Hattush, Shechaniah, Rehum, Meramoth, Edu, Ginnathoi, Abijah, Mijamin, Madiah, Bilga, Shemaiah, Joyarib, Jediah, Salu, Amok, Hilkiah, Jediah. These were the chiefs of the priests and of their brothers in the days of Jeshua. And the Levites, Jeshua, Binuai, Cadmiel, Sherebiah, Judah, and Mataniah, who with his brothers was in charge of the songs of thanksgiving. And Bakbukiah and Unai and their brothers stood opposite them in the service. And Jeshua was the father of Jehoiakim, Joiakim the father of Eliashib, Eliashib the father of Joiada, Joiada the father of Jonathan, and Jonathan the father of Jadua. In the days of Joiakim were priests, heads of fathers' houses, of Sariah, Mariah, of Jeremiah, Hananiah, of Ezra, Meshulam, of Amariah, Jehoanan, of Malukai, Jonathan, of Shabaniah, Joseph, of Harim, Adnah, of Marioth, Hilkai, of Idu, Zechariah, of Ginnathon, Meshulam, of Abijah, Zikri, of Miniamin, of Moadiah, Piltai, of Bilga, Shamua, of Shemaiah, Jehonathan, of Joyarib, Matanai, of Jediah, Uzi, of Salai, Kalai, of Amok, Eber, of Hilkiah, Hashabiah, of Jediah, Nathanel. In the days of Eliashib, Joiada, Johanan, and Jadua, the Levites were recorded as heads of fathers' houses. So too were the priests in the reign of Darius the Persian. As for the sons of Levi, their heads of fathers' houses were written in the book of the Chronicles until the days of Johanan the son of Eliashib. And the chiefs of the Levites, Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua the son of Cadmiel, with their brothers who stood opposite them to praise and to give thanks according to the commandment of David, the man of God, watch by watch. Mataniah, Bakbukiah, Obadiah, Meshulam, Talman, and Akub were gatekeepers standing guard at the storehouses of the gates. These were in the days of Joachim, the son of Jeshua, son of Josadak, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and of Ezra, the priest and scribe. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much for reading that. Well, good morning. Welcome to Sacred City Church. My name is Justin, and I am the lead pastor here at the church, and I want to do a couple things briefly before I get into preaching God's Word this morning. First, I want to announce that we have hired Alicia Miller to be our new deaconess of Sacred City Kids, so that's good. <clears throat> yep. uh, Jeff and Alicia began doing CrossFit in my garage about eight years ago. Soon after that, they joined the church and have been vital members ever since. And one of the unique aspects of our church is that in the past 11 years, we have never had to hire outside of our community. 
I believe that this is a good sign of health for a church, that we are raising up our leaders from within, and that creates a lot of trust within our leadership and within our staff, and it also just becomes really easy to transition somebody in and transition someone out. So Emily has spent the past couple weeks walking with Alicia and training Alicia, and so we think that baton is going to be passed relatively smoothly. Uh, So if you see Alicia in the foyer or around the campus, thank her for stepping into this role and be in prayer for her as she makes the change. Like many of us, she is also homeschooling two of her children. She's a missional community leader, and so she's got a lot going on. So we're going to give her a lot of grace, and we're going to bring her before the Lord together in prayer today. The second thing that I want to bring before you today is that uh, I want to let you know that we are actively pursuing a building in town. Yep, 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 yep. Now, I don't want to get your hopes up too high yet because there is nothing official yet, nothing signed or anything like that. And things change really quickly in the real estate market, you know. But we have been in contact with another uh, local church and they want to sell to us. And as of right now, we think we want to buy their building. Um, We're interested in it. And uh, right now we're in the the phase of counting the cost and making sure that the building checks off all of the boxes of what we need and that we can afford the remodeling that we'd want to do to it. I have engaged an architect and I'll be walking through the building again this week with an architect so they can create a 3D rendering for us of what the building would look like and get a good estimate of the remodeling costs. So I tell you that um, so that you can be in prayer for me, you can be In prayer for our elders and for our staff, we believe that this could be the next step as a church and we want to bring it before the Lord and have him open the doors that no man can shut and shut the doors that no man can open so we know for sure. And uh, we won't just be making this decision on our own as well. If we we, uh, feel like it's the right thing to do, we're going to be bringing it before our members. And uh, But we're, we're, we're excited. This is the first time and I've been looking for a building actively pretty consistently for probably a year and a half. And this is the first one that I've went through and was like, this might work. And, uh, and the staff has as well. And so we're, we're thinking that this might be the next step that the Lord's open for us. And um, Now, just to let you know, this will be an exciting day. But this is kind of like, if any of you ever climbed a mountain and you get to the trailhead, this is kind of like that. We're at the trailhead and we're looking up and we have a long way to go. We have a long march ahead of us. We've got a lot of work ahead of us. So if this is the building, there is quite a, quite a bit of remodeling that we'd want to do before we get in there. And um, th- we'll see how that goes, right? We'll see how that goes. So just be in prayer for us. So let's, let's pray together and bring these needs before the Lord and also ask him to bless our time as we study his word together this morning. Gracious Father, you told us Um, to come to you and pray to you as our almighty heavenly father. And so that's what we do this morning. First, we bring Alicia before you this morning. We love kids at Sacred City. We want to pass on our faith to the next generation. And we want a deacon or deaconess um, equipping parents and helping parents equip their children to, to disciple them in the ways of the Lord. So I pray for Alicia. I pray that you would equip her. You've called her to this position. I pray that you'd give her everything she needs. I pray that you'd help volunteers come around her and rally together to accomplish this mission. I pray parents would be taking full responsibility of the discipleship of their children. You'd put a a heavy weight of responsibility upon them, and I pray that they would not shy away from that, but they would step into that. I pray that you would uh, just bring blessing to Alicia and blessing to our children's ministry during this next season. I also pray... For your hand of blessing to be upon us as you lead and guide us to to our next building, a permanent permanent location where we can do good gospel ministry to the next generation and reach out to our city for years to come. Um, Like I said before, I pray that you would open doors that no man can shut and you would close doors no man could open. So this would be really evident that we are making a wise decision and we're doing the next thing that you've uh, called us to do. And I just thank you for bringing this opportunity and if it be your will. I ask that we would embrace it, we would step into it, and we'd do the hard work necessary to make it our own. And then lastly, Lord, we come before you and we just ask that you would straighten out anything crooked in us, any crooked thinking, any uh, sinfulness, that you would bring redemption to our hearts, that you would help us this morning. As the preacher of your word this morning, I ask that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, that it would be all of you and none of me. 
Oh, great shepherd of the sheep, would you speak to your people through me today? Would you hide me behind your word? Would you help us open our ears and listen with uh, good ears as good listeners? And they, I pray that your sheep would just hear your voice. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. <clears throat> now, as the uh, scripture was being read this morning, I bet you were thinking, really? Another list of names? Really? Well, yeah, you're right. It's another list of names. It's the fourth and final list in the book of Nehemiah. And I've got to be honest with you. As I went to my study this week and opened up my Bible, I said the same thing. I was like, Lord, not again. Another list of names. I'm, I'm like, I got to tap out. I have no creativity left. I don't have anything else to do with another list of names. I got nothing. And then I dug a little deeper. See, when you start reading the Bible, you can read the Bible and you can just scratch the surface and you're going to get what's on the surface, right? But if you dig deeper, see, God doesn't, hide, God doesn't usually just sprinkle diamonds on the ground, right? He doesn't, gold, you don't find gold just laying on the ground. You got to dig deep to get to the good stuff, right? And studying God's word is the same way. And as I, as I came to study God's word, I started to get more and more excited about this passage. Remember, why do we read this long passage? Why do we read just this list of names? Because we believe that all of God's word is divinely inspired. It comes from him. All of it is profitable for us to study and us to hear. All of it is meant to teach us something that we need to know. And many times we miss it when we come to a passage like today. I've had pastors tell me, the Bible says nothing about how do you order a society. And I want to be like, have you read Ezra Nehemiah? Because Ezra Nehemiah tells us a whole bunch about it, right? So we just got to dig down deep into it. Now, what most people do is probably what I do too. In my personal devotion with the Lord, when I get to a chapter like this, I'm like, Hezekiah, next chapter, right? And if you read the Bible like that, surprisingly, you'll say, hey, you'll say stupid things like, the Bible doesn't say anything about how you should order a society, you're right. If you skip whole chapters where it does, the Bible doesn't say anything about that, right? We need to dig down deep into sections of Scripture like we got today. Again, when you put in the work, God's, work, God's Word never disappoints. Now listen, from day one of Sacred City, we have said that our mission is to make disciples, plant churches, and renew our cities with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That last piece, renew our cities, God is giving us a clearer picture of what that looks like or what that could look like if we follow God's way of doing things. Today, we're going to learn some key details and what does it look like to renew a city or what does it take to renew a city? And here's the main lesson that we're going to get from this chapter. To really change a, a, a city or a country for that matter, it's going to take a whole bunch of Christians working together in a structured and organized way, structured and organized, think government, think pol political structure and organized, right? Using their specific God-given gifts, talents, callings, and expertise to glorify God, right? To using all of their tools and all of their gifts to glorify God in their own very specific ways to worship him. All right, that's what it's going to take. Bunch of diverse people using all of their gifts to glorify God and to follow his blueprint for renewal, which is the scriptures. Now, that might not sound too pro profound, but I think it is. And I think it's one of the reasons why we actually haven't seen very much revival and renewal in our country for a really long time. See, if you ask a 21st century Christian what our country needs, they most likely would say, people need to come to Jesus. People need to get saved. People need to bow their knees to King Jesus. And to that, I would agree. However, every faithful church has been saying that for 2,000 years, right? The preachers and the places that have seen the most revival and the most renewal that led to genuine change in a culture... That means a genuine change in the city, the state, or the nation have been the preachers who preached that getting saved was only the first half of the equation. 
The second half of the equation was actually bringing that salvation to bear on the, the rest of society. So salvation wasn't just a personal experience that saved a person from hell. Salvation was also drafting a person into the mission of God to change the world, all right, to go out and renew the city. In other words, once a person gets saved by Jesus, they are now on mission with Jesus to renew all things to, according to God's word. They are to reorder their lives around God's word. The scriptures tell them how to order their own personal life, how to order their family life, how to order their work life, how to order their church life, how to order their financial life, and even how to order their civic life, okay? Their political life, their governmental life, how we work together with other people. God's word speaks to every aspect of our personal and communal life, and we are to order them Order all the spheres of our life around God's word. What that means, here it is, is there is a Christian way to do everything. Okay, I'm glad I got some amens in here because I thought I was going to get some pushback. Because when I say things like that, people often push back on it. When I say that there's a Christian way to order the family, a Christian way to, to run a business, a Christian way to order a society... Right? And we must know it and then be working towards it, I often get pushed back. People often say things to me like, So you're telling me there's a Christian way to cook a steak? Ah, what a joke, right? That's what they say. Well, listen, the person who responds that way has obviously never been to India or Canada for that matter. See, over 80% of the people in India don't eat meat at all. Their false religion of Hinduism tells them that cows are sacred. They believe that the cow represents Mother Earth, as it is a source of goodness and its milk nourishes its creatures. See, once again, a nation's religion will affect the kind of foods they believe are clean and unclean. So your religion will affect what you believe about everything else. Muslims don't eat pork, right? So, Christianity, specifically, we have specific God speaking to Peter in the New Testament. We have specific uh, teaching that we Christians can and do, if we want to, eat both. So yes, there is a specifically Christian way to cook a steak and smoke a pork shoulder. The only reason you might be tempted to laugh at the question is because our culture has already been so deeply influenced by the Christian view of the world, right? That we just say, oh, there's free. Well, yeah, of course there's a Christian way to do that. We, or, of, course, of course we can do that, right? I also mentioned Canada. Canada is quickly becoming a nation that is ruled entirely by its elite class. It's becoming more and more socialistic and Marxist that seeks to control all aspects of a person's life. That type of government is not biblical. That type of government is anti-Christian. Canada has their own food laws. They have banned restaurants from selling all forms of undercooked or rare meat. So if you go to a steakhouse, you can't order your steak medium rare, the way that Jesus ordered his. <laughs> joke, joke, okay. You can't order it medium rare, though. It's true. Listen, now, why do I say that that's government overreach or that's not biblical? See, when Jesus was asked if he should pay taxes or not, and he took the coin, he says, whose face is on it? And it said Caesar's. He said this, give to Caesar what is God's, but give, or give to Caesar's what is Caesar's, but give to God's what is God's. Saying this, what has the image of Caesar on it? This little bit of money. What has the image of God on it? The totality of a human person. Right? That's what he's meant to say. So he, what he was saying was, yes, this, you were meant to give this small amount of money to Caesar, right? To provide the basic necessities of civil life together. Protection of enemies. You should fund some kind of army, right? You need infrastructure like roads to make commerce possible. And you need a basic police force and judicial system. But when he said, give to God what is God's, he's saying, give that little bit to Caesar, but give the totality of your life back to God. That means your personhood, your livelihood, the majority of your life and your income too, back to God. 
right? The government is, bent, is meant to be limited in its reach and in its scope. In a Christian society, the government would not be telling you what type, to sto- of type of stove to have, how thick your drywall has to be, or how to cook your steak. That's government overreach. Christians have the freedom to cook their steak to the temperature of their liking or to abstain from eating meat if they so choose. That freedom is a freedom that comes from Jesus and from the gospel. That is a Christian freedom. So there is a Christian way to do everything, even cook a steak. It's my contention that this reality has been lost on most of of us. It's even been lost on most preachers and many churches today. Our churches have been wanting people to bend the knee to King Jesus, but then they haven't taught them how to go out into the world and order every aspect of their life around Jesus. So if the gospel is only personal and only changes a person's heart, it will never really reach out to society and change it in formative ways. Now, here's what's interesting. We think that the only thing that matters to God is our own heart. That's not the only thing that matters to God. In fact, it's the it's the boring things of life that actually shape what people love and what people, uh, the way that people live their life. Okay, let me explain that to you. I was reading this text this week and a scholar, D.A. Carson, mentioned that for the long time, Christians have thought if revival happens, it's going to happen in the heart of people. And that's and basically what that means is just people get happy about Jesus and people come to faith and that's it. Right? I was raised charismatic in a charismatic church. That's what they thought. You get cha- Revival was everybody like, you know, kind of running around and getting crazy and getting on fire for Jesus. And that's it. It's all about excitement. D.A. Carson made this statement. If revival doesn't reach the boring stuff of life, then it's not real revival. So if revival doesn't work its way into the structures of society, if revival doesn't change the way you do government, if revival doesn't change the way you do education, if revival doesn't reach the boring stuff of life, then it's not real revival. Because here's the deal. The boring stuff of life is, shapes what we love. Our edu- the way that we're educated tells us what is good about life, right? For generations now, women have been educated to believe that they are just like men and they're meant to go build an identity just like men. So they're told, go out, get a college education, but get, a bunch of, get a bunch of student loans, find a career that will make you happy, right? Don't have children right away. Don't get married right away. Push that back longer and longer and longer. Find a career that will satisfy you, right? Basically, you're just like a man. Go find your identity just like a man would. And then when women get to a certain age and they start desiring to have children, right? Now, they're this, now there's this real battle here. I've got a bunch of student loans. I'm, I'm providing, I'm, part, I'm half, you know, 50% of, of the provider of the home. How do I, how do I have a child now? And that many young women have, have pushed off having children later and later and later. And now the biological clock is ticking and they can't. And then the culture tells them you should be ashamed of yourself if you feel like staying home with your children, right? Our education system has created that that love and placed it in many women's hearts. And it doesn't come primarily from Scripture. Scripture teaches that a woman should love her husband and should desire her children. And her first desire should be to organize her home and to to serve her family first and foremost. And then if she wants to have a career outside of that, okay, fine. Right? But what my point is, our educational system has formed our loves. See? And if we have an idea of revival that never works its way into our educational system, we're never going to have a revival that actually changes society. It's got to get to the boring stuff of life. Now, I've been saying for a while around here that it is our desire to have a multi-generational vision for renewal in our city. Now, what I mean by that is barring like, you know, a supernatural pouring out of the spirit like you see in Acts 2, I don't believe that my generation will drastically change our cities. I think it's going to take thousands more people converted. I think it's going to take dozens, if not maybe hundreds more churches planted. It's going to take 
that many new nonprofits serving the poor and things like that. It's going to take thousands of politicians and artists and businessmen working to renew our city. It's going to take dozens more Christian schools in our city. If, it's, if, if we're really going to see restoration, we're really going to see renewal, it's going to take all of that and probably more. So more than likely, the change that we want to see in this city, it's not going to be this generation. It might be next generation. It might be three generations from now. I, I don't know. What that means is maybe it's our kids and maybe it's our grandkids that are actually going to reap the benefits of what we are praying and working for. But it's our job to lay the foundation and to give our kids and our grandkids this biblical vision for citywide gospel renewal. We want to teach our, our, peop, our, our, our kids that God loves this city and God wants to bring renewal to the city and God can do it. We need to have faith to believe it. And it, studying Ezra and Nehemiah, we, we've already learned some big principles for how that happens. Ezra taught us that renewal begins at the house of God. You'll never change the city if the church isn't on point. The church must first be restored to worship God the way he has told us to worship him, to orient our worship around God, not around our needs, not around our desires, not around our styles or our preferences, but around God's. People must confess their sins. They must turn from their wicked ways. They must embrace the only Savior, the God-man, Jesus Christ. The early chapters of Nehemiah showed us that God doesn't just want a church. He wants a city to honor him, right? So Nehemiah, what does he do? He moves to the city he, and he wants to rebuild the wall that surrounds the city to make it a safe place to live, a safe place to work, and a safe place to work. Worship God. Hear that. Building a protective wall around the city was a God-honoring, God-glorifying thing. A nation, a city, must be able to protect its borders. That is a Christian thing to do. Politically, it's a Christian thing to do. And also, just practically, it's a Christian thing to do. There is a Christian way to be a builder, to be a contractor, to be a mason, to be a construction worker. Then Nehemiah showed us that Christian men, right? So we got the church that gets renewed. And then you get the protective walls around the city. So, so now we, we've got other stuff to do. And these Christian men are to bring their renewal, they bring their revival home to them and order their families in a Christian way. They must structure and order their family life around God. They must love their wife. The wives should respect their husbands. They must discipline their children. The children must respect and honor their parents. They must keep the Sabbath day holy and they're to train their kids to love God and walk in his ways. Remember, they said, kids, you're not going to marry unbelievers, right? We renewed, they renewed the covenant and then made oaths to walk in his ways. And then everything, remember this, everything Nehemiah did, it's easiest to forget because we're kind of out of that stage of the book. Everything Nehemiah was doing, he was doing in the midst of conflict and turmoil. He had haters, he had detractors, he had enemies who wanted to stop this great work of renewal, but he refused to stop. He said, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. I can't stop and I won't stop. Now listen, the same will be true of us. This multi-generational mission that God's called us to, we will have detractors. We will have people that hate us. We will have people that want to stop us and we have to expect that opposition and then we have to be steadfast in the midst of it and keep our hand to the plow and our face pointed forward and we must be diligent in our work over generations if we're going to see real change take place. We must keep working and building with all the grace that God has given us. So here's what, I, here's what I'm, I'm trying to show you. In the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, we have seen a renewed temple, a rebuilt wall, a repentant people, a renewal of the covenant, and now in our text today, we see the last act of renewal, the repopulation of Jerusalem. All of those started with R. That was very, that was very Baptist of me. Um, so let's get to our text I'll let, we're in chapter 11, just to let you know, if you're looking at your watch, okay, just to let you know, I'm not going verse by verse through this whole thing, all right? We've already suffered through that enough. I'm going I'm to hit the high points here. So if you've got your Bible, open it up to chapter 11, verse 1. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, 
And the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in other towns. Okay, what's going on here? One of the biblical threads of the biblical story is that it begins in a garden and it ends in a city. See, throughout the scriptures, the city is both a picture of mankind coming together to worship God and a picture of mankind coming together in rebellion against God. Think of the Tower of Babel. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah. Think of the nation of Babylon. Think of Rome, just to name a few. But over and against that negative picture, we have the city of God. Jerusalem, which literally means the city of the God of peace. Jesus then takes that city language and he applies it to his followers, to the church. And he says, you are a city set on a hill. Then in the last book of the Bible, we see Jesus return to destroy Babylon, the rebellious city, and to establish the new Jerusalem where nothing evil will ever enter into it and and God's people will live forever with him without any stain of sin in a totally renewed heaven and earth and a totally renewed city. Now I say that, I, I want us to see both pictures of that because most people and most preachers for that matter don't hold those two pictures of the city together. They either simply say things like, God loves the city, so the city is great, so you should move to the city, and we should work work in the city and all these different things. Now, the preachers that usually say that, shocker, live in the city, right? And it is true that God does love the city, but it's also just as true that God hates the city, and God's going to destroy the city, and God's going to bring judgment upon the city. So there's also preachers that, that lean towards that, and they say, you know what, no, actually, God hates the city because there's so much sin going on in the city, so we should actually leave the city like Abram left Sodom and Gomorrah, and those preachers say, hey, I live out in the country, you guys should all join me, and we'll build bunkers together, right? Now, here's the reality. Here's the biblical reality. Both of those things are true at the same time. Right? Both of those things are true. God loves the city. He loves people. He loves the world. He wants to save it. Right? And he's renewing the world and it's going to become a glorious city one day. But God also hates the sin that takes place in the city. Right? And the reality of a city is you've got more people. There's more people in the city per square inch on the face of the earth than other places, right? And so that means what comes with the image of God? What comes with human beings? Well, the blessings that humans can create culture and do good things and worship together and also the curse, right? The sinfulness. People often come to cities to sin, right? That's why there's more crime that's happening in cities. There's a lot of, there's more murders that are happening in cities. City gives sinners a place to hide, right? It's harder to find them, right? When Cain, killed, when Cain killed Abel, right, there wasn't much of a criminal case, right? There's only one guy who could have done this, right? It's pretty easy to, to solve that case, right? But in a city, it becomes a lot more difficult. So both of these things are true at the same time. But here's what we need to see. We have to acknowledge cities are important. Cities are influential. And if you're going to impact a culture for Jesus, you're going to have to do some uh, work in the city. You're going to have to change some things from the city. So now Nehemiah, what he's doing here is he's bringing the people together and he's saying, okay, guys, we built the wall. We've got the temple. We've got things structured, but guess what? At this time, remember the city was, when they got there, the city was in ruins, right? And so the city was showing all of its ugliness. Crime was probably rampant, didn't have the protective walls. You got all kind of scary people living in the city. And so all, a lot of the family folks were like, nah, we'll go find us a nice little acreage outside of town. And we're going to go move out there and we're going to raise our family out there. Well, then he moves, he does this rebuilding project, this restoration project. And now he's like, all right, guys, we've built the city. We've done all this. We need to move back in. 
Like, we need people to come back in. Like, there's more dogs than people in the city. That's a problem, right? So, this is his idea. We will cast lots. That's what he does. We're going to cast lots. And here's how I'm going to describe this. We're going to roll a dice. Let's just say this dice has 10 numbers on it, 1 to 10, right? And if you get a 1, everybody moves back to the city. All the 1s are moving back into the city. Now, what's interesting is Proverbs tells us this in Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So here's what's going on. These people believe that God is sovereign over all things, that God is provident, his providence rules over all. So as Jesus said, a sparrow can't fall, fall from the sky without him knowing it, that he, God knows every hair that's on your head. God also knows when you roll, roll a dice, exactly what number is going, is going to come up. And he foreordained that number to come up. So, he's, so here's what this, these people had an understanding of the sovereignty of God that this is how we're going to do this. We're going to cast lots. We're playing paper, rock, scissor here, right? And anybody that gets a one has to move back into the city. Would, are you, you guys willing to do that? Listen, if we find this new building, right? Find this new building, might need some people to move into the neighborhood. We want to be in the city. We want to be for the city. We want to be in that neighborhood. We want, to, we want to reach people in our neighborhood. How many of you are willing to say, let's put, it, let's put it on the dice? Think about that. Think about what would happen if we did that. Think about how consequential that would be. What would you do? You'd be thinking, well, what kind of school district is it in? How, how close is it to a park? How close is it to the bike path? Well, what are the neighbors like? Well, what, right? These people are, this, this is, think about this. They've got, a nice, they've got a nice plot outside of town. They got to move into the old crummy city, right? And they got to work on the, in the inside. They got to bring renewal into the city. That's going to take some sacrifices, right? That's going to take, that's gonna, they're going to have to count the cost here. But they're willing to say, God, I trust you and the dice. Roll them. And look what they say here in verse two, or the end of verse one. No, no, verse two, I'm sorry. <laughs> And the people blessed all the men, look, look, who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Who willingly offered. I thought you said it was a roll of the dice. Yes, but listen to this. Here's what the people are saying. My will is to do God's will. So if I roll the dice and it's a one and I got to move into the city, that's what I want to do. I want to do what God's called me to do. So I will willingly obey what God tells me to do. And look at all the other people. What do they say? All the other people blessed all the men who rolled ones. God bless your heart. Right? Thank God it wasn't me. But bless you for serving the city and moving into the city. And all the people that live on the outskirts of town right now just went, oh, Justin's not going to make us move into the city. No. Nine out of ten stayed on the outside. But some people were called by God to move into the center city to start build, uh, the way we would say it, building Christian culture in the city. Now, the rest of the chapter into chapter 12. Shows us how the, the revival they experienced affected everything in their culture, okay? The revival they experienced wasn't just in their heart, but it worked its way out to all aspects of their culture. And what we see is this repopulation of the city and this renewal project had to get really organized and that required Nehemiah specifically and other people having using their leadership gifts and their organizational gifts. Spiritual gifts aren't just like preaching and prayer and things like that. God gives spiritual gifts. Some of those spiritual gifts are leadership gifts. The ability to organize, the ability to, to structure things, the ability to create a good spreadsheet. Those are all gifts needed by the church and needed by a Christian society. And when you study this chapter closely, this is one of the things that I noticed this week. When I got down and I started digging deep, you see the three spheres of life all working together uh, intimately and, and harmoniously. Now, what are the three spheres of life? First, you have the sphere of the family. Now, over and over in the text, you're going to read 
the chief of the father's houses or the head of the father's houses. And then you remember we heard, and the son of, and the son of, and the son of, right? So we have the family sphere of, of society working together. Now, this is very important because we, we focus too much on, I'm going to say the civil sphere, the political sphere, or maybe even the church sphere, and not enough on the family. When the family is the most primary, the family is the first, right? The first thing Adam and Eve did was create a family, not create a church, right? They created a family. That's primary in any society. And if the family breaks down, the rest of society will break down. The church even often breaks down when the family breaks down, okay? So the men were called to lead their homes, the wives were called to come along and help them. They were to raise children. They were to raise those children in a Christian way and pass on the faith to them. The son of, the son of, the son of. Christian, Christian, Christian. Pass down the faith. That's the normal way people come to faith. The normal way people come to faith is not some radical testimony. Does God do that? Yes. But Christian parents should not want their children to have a radical testimony, right? We don't want our kids to be alcoholic since the age of eight. And then they radically met Jesus at 14, right? That's, that's a bad story. Thank God that they met Jesus, right? right? But the alcoholic at eight is not normal, right? That's not a normative pattern. We want our children to know Jesus, to love Jesus all the days of their life, right? So here we see the sphere of family working together. Their homes are being well-managed. They're teaching their children in the way of the Lord. And it's working in, in society, teaching them to be industrious and it's working in society. Then we see what we would call the sphere of the church. In this chapter, we've got priests mentioned. We've got Levites, that's the servants to the priests. We have overseers, elders, literally the same word that's used in the New Testament for elders. We have temple servants. We have singers. We have mu musicians, right? There's a, so you, you see this, there's a lot of volunteers going along. There's a lot of people that are, are called to serve in the church and to use their specific gifts in very specific ways, right? All of that's happening in society. So you've got family operating harmoniously with the church. And then you have the third sphere. We could call it the civil sphere or what we might call the sphere of the state. In this chapter, you see governmental workers, you see gatekeepers, you see watchmen, you see chiefs of the provinces, you see the governor and all the representatives of the people. And one of my favorite, you see three times, well, twice it's called men of valor, and once it's called mighty men of valor. And there's a bunch of them. There's like 368, 265, 100 something, a lot of men of valor. Who are the men of valor? The men of valor were the men who had shown exceptional or heroic courage when facing danger, especially in battle. So literally, it's listing the warriors, right? Think of soldiers here or policemen. You need soldiers. You need policemen to have a well-functioning society. Why? Oh, so I have to tell this to this generation. There are bad people in the world that want to take everything you have. And if you don't have people armed then the bad guys will arm themselves and take everything from the good guys. That's the way our broken world works right now. So in God's society, he's like, he names straight up the mighty men of valor, the men of valor. We need those guys, right? We're not trying to disarm those guys. We need those guys. That's good in a Christian kingdom, right? But the one thing here I want us all to see is in order to change a city, it takes people from all walks of life. It takes people with all the giftings that God gives to people, right? It takes family men and family women. It takes tradesmen. Craftsmen are named in the text. It takes businessmen, leaders, organizers, rulers, warriors, worship leaders, pastors, elders, preachers, governmental workers, cooks, perfumers, artists, and storytellers. In other words, God wants all of us with all of our gifts working together with our specific talents to build a city that honors God. And in, in that sense of the word, guys, all of it is ministry. All of it is meant to be done unto the Lord. The prophet Micah says this pretty clear when he says this, quote, he has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God, Micah 6, 8. Now, it's important for us to hear those words well. 
Because he doesn't just tell us to go do what we think is just. Go do what you think is right. No, he tells us God is the one who tells us what is good. God is the one who determines what is just, what is right, what is truth, what is beautiful. There are those in our society who want to twist these words from Micah here to serve their own ends and agenda. I'm hearing so-called progressive pastors say things like, Jesus was more of a socialist than a capitalist. Now, that is an absolutely absurd claim. Socialism is built on the sins of envy and theft. Socialism gives a godless governmental official the right to forcibly steal money, resources, and property from hardworking Christian individuals and families to pay for someone else's sinful lifestyle. Socialism is state-sponsored irresponsibility. Socialism is state-sponsored laziness. Socialism is state-sponsored promiscuity. Socialism is state-sponsored fatherlessness. Socialism is state-sponsored abortion and state-sponsored theft. What do I mean by that? It, I, I mean by that is it gives the government the right to take money from my bank account and pay for someone else to have an abortion because of their own irresponsibility or their own choice of sin. That's what they're trying to pass right now. In many places, it already is. California, other places like that, it's already, it's already a thing. That is godless. That is not Christian. Jesus wholeheartedly, totally promotes and commands charity to the poor, right? But that charity is meant to be personally given, not stolen by the state to be used by however they want to use it. So we are to use our gifts that God has given us the way God's called us to use them. We are to do our duty unto the Lord. We are to do that out in the city. We are to be kind and work for justice and, and take care of the poor. We are to do that on our own out in the city in such a way that we show through our work that Jesus is king and we are here to order society the way he has commanded us to. Now listen, his way is the only way to get to what is true, good, and beautiful. Every other way leads to chaos. Every other way leads to chaos. Now, my last point this morning is to draw your attention to all of the commands regarding music in this chapter. It's interesting. God's people were to be a worshiping people. You have all kind of singers, you've got trumpet players, you've got all kind of musicians, you've got stringed instruments, you've got all kind of stuff that's going on in the temple. You've got this, it's called antiphonal singing back and forth with one another in different parts that the temple was meant to echo with the praises of God's people. God commanded him to write songs, to do it the way David did it, he says in there to sing praises to him, to play their musical instruments, to worship him in the temple. Now, this is interesting. What does that have to... Here's, here's the idea. When, I, when I'm preaching on a text like this that's kind of focused out there on, on all the stuff we do out in the world, we can, we can somehow forget that it's deeply connected to what we do in here. The way you parent is deeply connected to the way we worship, okay? The way you work in your factory job or in your corporate job or in your school, the way you work out there is deeply informed by what we do in here. Worship, our worship in here is meant to shape us in such a way that we go out there and live differently. All right? And that's what we see all through this text is the worship of God's people really mattered. I'm going to go to Psalm 149 to kind of prove this real quick. Second to last Psalm in the Bible, one of my favorites. And it says this, praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. So right away, we have, we have this command by, why do we sing? Why do we play instruments? Why do we do this? Because God commands us to, right? We're commanded to praise the Lord. We're commanded to sing to the Lord a new song. When we gather together, 
When we come together, look at verse 2. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Here's the idea. You were created by God. You were formed by God. You're made in the image of God. And when you think about that, one of the things we're told in Zephaniah is that God sings over his people. God is a singing God, so he's made us into singing people. And so one of the things, when we come together, we sing about what we love. And what we love is God. That's what we love more than anything else. So when we come together, we sing of him, right? We sing to him. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. I just love that we're commanded by God to enjoy him. Come together and rejoice, right? The joy of the Lord is our strength. Remember that from Nehemiah? Well, how do we build that joy up? One of the ways we do, we do it is through singing, right? Singing is an enjoyable activity. And what do we want to sing about? The one we enjoy the most. Who's that? God. So we come together and sing. Verse 3. Let them praise his name with dancing making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. This is a percussion instrument, and this is a stringed instrument. This is why we've got drums up here. This is why we've got guitars up here, right? Look at this, verse 4. This is a beautiful verse. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Why do we sing to God? Because God enjoys us. Look at this. He adorns the humble with salvation. When we come into the Lord, why do we confess our sins? Because we're sinners and we need to pr profess and confess our own humility. We need salvation from outside of ourselves. I don't, I don't obey God and get salvation. Salvation is a sheer gift of God. So the humble come in and we, get receive, we, we receive forgiveness. And what do we want to do after we receive forgiveness? We want to shout for joy. We want to sing to God. We want to thank him for all that he's done. Verse 5, let the godly exalt and glory. Now, to exalt is different to exalt. Exalting something is to say, that is amazing, that is awesome. Exalting means to be in it and enjoying it. So when you are in, look, let the godly exalt in glory. When God is here and his word is preached and the gospel is proclaimed, there's a weightiness here. There's a glory here that you can't find anywhere else in, 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 in out there. Listen, I love nature. I love mountains. I love streams. I love all that kind of stuff. And yes, I see the glory and the grandeur of God when I'm out there, but that's nothing compared to what is present here. The Spirit of God is here when His Word is proclaimed and the sacraments are performed. And we're to exult in it. We're to enjoy it. And it's going to change us from one degree of glory to another as we do that. Now this next verse is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and a two-edged sword in their hands. Now listen, this I'm just going to say it like this. It, this is masculine worship. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and a two-edged sword in their hand. This is not, right, some kind of effeminate singing prom songs to Jesus here. Okay, this is men doing what men were created to do. And that is to do battle and that is to worship God. And those two things are meant to go hand in hand. Now, let me also say to you that unless we are, you are a police officer or you're in the, in the army and all these different things where you're protecting and serving, our two-edged sword is now the word of God, right? And so we're still, so when we're singing with those praises of God in our throat, we need to be connected to the word of God. So that means we don't sing the songs that we want to sing because they got a good beat. We sing the songs that are from scripture. We don't sing songs that are out there. There's a lot of churches out there, Bethel, Hillsong, Elevation Church, that write crap music. I'm going to say it like that. They write emotional music that's not from the scriptures. Keep that garbage out of our voices at this church. We want a two-edged sword to be in our hand. That means we want our worship to be informed by the word of God. Right? And that's a masculine thing to do. Now listen, men, as you are leading your families to worship God, when you come in here, you're teaching them how to worship God. And you should lift up your hands and lift up your voice. You might cry a tear. You might shout with a loud voice. Your worship in here needs to be as exuberant as your worship when you're at the football game. Right? 
bring that intensity in here. It's right to do. Let the high praises of God be in their throats. And when I say it's masculine, ladies, I'm not saying it's not for you, right? This is, it's strongly feminine as well, all right? We're all meant to do this. And now this is where it gets weird. Remember, this is a psalm that David, or that, that they would have sang in the worship community. And this part is going to get really weird to our 21st century ears, right? Sing about Jesus, sing about worship, and then sing about killing people. <laughs> what? That, this makes me very uncomfortable. Listen, to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron to execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Worship was meant to be militant. Worship was meant to be declaring to the nations, if they don't repent, God will judge them and crush them. See? This is why we need some battle hymns in the church. This is why we we're singing uh, Martin Luther's A Mighty Fortress Is Our God. We need these types of hymns. Now, you might say, Justin, whoa, wow, vengeance, judgment, really Old Testament. Isn't Jesus gentle and lowly? Doesn't Jesus teach us to love our enemies? Yes, but Jesus also tells us that he's coming again with a sword. He is the rightful king of the universe. What do you think he's going to do when he shows up with socialist Marxist states who those leaders claim to be rulers of their kingdoms? See, no one owns, we don't own this land, right? Chinese people and the Chinese government doesn't own China. That's God's land. He's the rightful owner to it. And they are in, they are in absolute rebellion against him. When the rightful king shows up, what do you think he's going to do? Well, we don't have to guess. 1 Corinthians 15 says this. Then I'm going to go to just verse 24. I'm jumping to 24 because I'm already over. Verse 24. Then comes the end when he, Jesus delivers the kingdom to God, the Father. Look, after destroying every rule, every authority, and every power. Here's what Jesus Christ is doing right now. He is ruling and reigning in heaven. And he is bringing his kingdom to this earth. And when he brings it and he comes back, he's going to destroy every rule, every authority, and every power that is set against him. Every evil ruler will be destroyed. Keep reading. Why? Verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That's what Jesus is doing. He's going to reign until all the kings of the world either bow their knee to him in repentance and surrender or they're going to receive judgment. They're going to be destroyed. Verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. See, there are demons, there are people, there are powers, there is death. All of these things are enemies to God. And when Jesus Christ comes back and he brings his kingdom, he's going to drive out all of that evil. And there's only two ways to do it. There's only two ways. One is through repentance. And the second is through judgment. And the people living today have that choice. So one of the things our worship is meant to do is to tell people, the king is here, bow your knee to the king. And if you don't, the king is coming and his kingdom is certain. We will be victorious. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Listen, another way to say it, the city of God 
is certain. The new heavens, the new earth is certain. Right now, we live in this in-between time where the city of man and the city of God are occupying the same ground, right? Sinfulness and righteousness operate the same ground. But when Christ comes back, all of the sin will be delivered. All the sin will be removed. And all of those who stand against God will be removed. And Christ will be victorious. If we don't have that view, we will lose hope. We will lose faith in the hard work that God's called us to to renew the city. If we don't have that long-term view, that victory is certain, right? Victory is certain. We'll lose faith in the here and now. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy and your kindness. I thank you for the hard words of scripture that we have to read, Lord, and the good news that comes, from, comes um, after those hard news. I pray that any person in this room who has not bowed their knee to King Jesus, they would see you as good, righteous, holy, and gracious, and they would do so today. And for all of us who call you our King, I pray, Lord God, that we would worship you um, with full hearts, right? Full-throated worship with a two-edged sword in our hands. Lord God, would you bring renewal to our homes? Would you bring renewal to our church? Would you bring renewal to our city for your glory and our joy? As we come together, we're reminded that we are the people of God. We are the church of God. We are the family of God. And we get to eat this meal that declares Jesus Christ is victorious. And we thank you for it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.